You guys, we are almost done studying, preaching, teaching through the book of Revelation, which a lot of you have said has been kind of like a mystery for a big chunk of your life. It's starting to make more sense the more that we put ourselves in the shoes of first century Christians who were trying to follow Jesus but were under the rule of the Roman Empire. Christianity was persecuted for a season. It was, uh, it was hard to be a Christian. But this is a message of encouragement to seven specific churches in the late first century. From John, the revelator, he had a vision and he's telling us what he saw. He sees Jesus. He's giving words of encouragement, words of comfort. Uh, we've been learning about the symbols of Revelation, that we're not necessarily watching a video replay of what has happened or what is going to happen. But what we've discovered as we've studied this together is that this is the revelation, the revealing or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The Lamb who was slain. The victory of Christ over sin and death. And it's kind of been leading up to this climax. And today we are in chapters 19 and 20. This is the second to last lesson in our Revelation series. We're at the end. We are going to see a big battle royale. Good versus evil. Christ versus Satan. And I'll tell you now, it's not very exciting. It's not a very climactic ending. We've been hearing about God's justice. We've been hearing about God's call for people to come and return to him and just, just follow me and, and come out of the darkness and stop holding on to the evil empire and the sinful, godless ways of the, 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 nature, the nation. And maybe some people do, but a lot of people don't. We've seen the, the seven seals open. The seven trumpets have been blown. The seven bowls have been poured out. There have been plagues and fire and hail and like this demon and a dragon and a woman and like it's been quite a ride. But where we land today is going to be the final showdown. And it's not that exciting. <laughs> it, it will remind me, we're going to read this in just a moment. Um, but the heading in my Bible, when we're in chapter 19, starting in verse 11, the heading says, the heavenly warrior defeats the beast. And if you go home today and somebody says, hey, what'd you hear in church? What was the lesson about? That's all you have to say. The heavenly warrior defeats the beast. If someone ever asks you, what's Revelation 19 and 20 about? You can say, I know, <laughs> there's a lot of words to have learned so quickly, but some of you got this. The heavenly warrior defeats the beast. Let's read a little. Starting in uh, verse 11, chapter 19, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, with capital letters. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Jesus. Who is this? Jesus. Yes, this is Jesus. You can tell from this description. He is leading the charge. Uh, before we get to the rest, I will just mention, and again, warn you that it's a little bit not exciting. The battle is going to be short. It's going to be quick. If you blink, you might miss it. As I was reading these passages this week, it reminded me of a classic movie from 1975 called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it for you, but it's almost 50 years old, so that's more on you than me. Uh, the end of the movie is also anti 
climactic. There's this quest for the Holy Grail. Arthur, king of the Britons, has all these different adventures. They finally get to this place where they're going to storm the castle, and they're lined up on the hills, and they're ready to make this charge, and it's about to happen, and the police show up, and they, this woman says, no, that was the man who killed my... What was it, Bill? The professor. Yeah, the, yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> they did some crime earlier in the movie, and then the, they show up, and they say, all right, and they arrest Arthur, and they, they say, you got to close this down. They look into the camera, and they say, just shut the whole thing down, and the screen goes white, and you go, what? <laughs> what just happened here? And as you're pondering that maybe they missed a movie reel, or maybe when I watched this on VHS back in the 90s, I was like, is there a second tape or something? Where's the rest of this movie? They start to roll the credits, and you go, ah, okay, those Python boys, uh, they got me. Again, <laughs> it made people so mad. Because you're expecting that for the next 45 minutes to an hour of this movie, it's going to be swords and axes and maces and battles and clanging of armor, but it's not. It's just over before it even starts. That is what is about to happen here in the Battle Royale. Christ versus Satan, the forces of good the heavenly warrior, and the beast. Uh, let's listen to this description. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Yikes! If that didn't make sense, that is basically just a terrifying image of somebody on the battlefield saying, hey, guess what? We're going to bring all these birds around. Birds, come gather because you're going to have something to eat very, very shortly. I know that school is out, but I really want a high school student to, to do this at a football game sometime. Imagine that you're like an opposing football team and you show up at the stadium and the home team has somehow assembled all of these birds just silently perched on the light posts and they have these giant turkey vultures and they're just waiting and you go, what is all the birds about? And the home team goes, oh, it's no big deal. It's just going to be such a slaughter. We're going to defeat you guys so quickly and so soundly that these birds are just going to feast on your flesh. No big deal. That kind of thing. That is what is happening here. An angel says, come on, birds. Gather around. You're going to like this. And then here is the battle. Short and quick. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword, coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds, as predicted, gorged themselves on their flesh. In short, the heavenly warrior defeats the beast. Yay! That is something worth celebrating. As I've been saying all along, you have to put yourself in the mindset, in the shoes of first century Christians who had no power, who had no security. They did not really have much of a sense of community. They were out there on their own. They were constantly seeing examples of the power of the state, symbols that said, you are nothing, you better get in line. We did away with Jesus. We don't want to hear his name anymore. But these Christians were going, we, we trust in Jesus. 
We believe that he is the heavenly warrior who's defeated the beasts. We believe that there's a victory in Christ. And we may not see it now, but we are putting our hope in it. This, they would have heard this about this victory on the football field, on the battlefield, and the birds satisfying themselves with the flesh of evil enemies who are defeated. And that would have given them more hope. That would have given them more encouragement. So, it's kind of an abrupt ending. This sermon could almost have an abrupt ending where I could say, that's pretty much it. That's what these chapters are about. 19 and 20, the heavenly warrior defeats the beast. But, that would not be the whole story. It's actually pretty simple. That's the big uh, bird's eye view, so to speak. But, chapter 20, as we look into it, raises a lot of questions. We find out it's not so simple after all. Or at least, we tend to get tangled up in it. I've been studying Revelation, and I've been, I'm not a expert in Revelation, but I've been studying scholars who are, or scholars who have read all of the scholars who are, and when it comes to chapter 20, more so than any other place in Revelation, this is the part where they kind of go, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit of a head scratcher. Some of these things we can explain, but we're just not 100% sure. Might be this, it might be this, it might be this, somebody said this, maybe, but we really just don't know. I grew up in a church that did not take I don't know for an answer. <laughs> I was raised in a culture that said the Bible is very clear. There's an answer for everything if only you know how to find it. I've even heard people, I've shared this with you before, say the Bible is like a puzzle. And it might be daunting. It may have a thousand pieces. But once you get the edge pieces in place, once you, it'll start to, the picture will start to come clear and it'll make a lot of sense. I don't think that's true. I think that that attitude, that we can have an answer to everything, that we can know everything that John saw, that John taught, that was trying to be communicated through God's Holy Spirit and this letter being preserved throughout history, I think that's a little arrogant. I think, let's be like the Bereans and let's search the scriptures. Let's learn. Let's try to understand as much as we can. But let's reserve a little bit of spiritual humility and say, there's times when we just don't know. I can tell you what I think. I can tell you what people have said, but I just don't know. I think that's healthy. I'm, we're going to get to chapter 20 in a second, but this is a little bit of a side road, but maybe a good one. It is actually good to be able to say, I don't know. It's hard for me because like I said, I was raised in a culture where uh, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I have studied the Bible. I went to college and studied the Bible. I'm a church leader. I should have a lot, if not all, of the answers. That becomes like an intimidation factor when it comes to sharing your faith with people. I've been in this church for a while and I've heard a lot of you say, one of the things that's holding me back from inviting someone to follow Jesus or to study the Bible with me is because I don't know enough. Give me a little humble head nod if you've ever thought that or felt that. I just, I don't know enough. Turns out that can be, if you did know everything, you're putting yourself in a dangerous position. If you present yourself as the expert, you say, I have all the answers on Revelation. Then the person is going to expect you to have all the answers on Jude and Exodus and extra biblical texts and issues and topics. And at some point you're going to have to say, I don't know. If you set yourself up to be an expert and you've conditioned people to say, well, I don't need to study it myself, I'll just ask, ask the expert. That's a problem. Saying I don't know actually is good for new Christians. And for you in a relationship with sharing Christ with someone, you can say, you know what? I don't know, but that's a great question. Why don't we study it together? What do you think? 
That invites people to discovery on their own. That is what makes disciples of Christ and not just a bunch of people consulting experts. Like I said, a bit of a side road, so let's bring it back to Revelation 20. Again, one of the more complicated chapters and with a lot of question marks. Let's read this and see if we can understand what's going on. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. That's good. Devil's locked up. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Um, okay. Why? I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for, say it, a thousand years. One of the reasons that chapter 20 gets people caught up and tripped up and not being able to see the big picture that this is the heavenly warrior defeating the beast is because of that thousand year period. This is the only time in scripture where the thousand year period is mentioned. We have already established as we're studying John that a lot of the numbers and colors and images are symbolic. They represent something that first century people would have understood very clearly, but we have to take a couple steps to get there since we're removed from the culture and from the, uh, the style of writing. We've talked about how a thousand years means a long period, or you know, a thousand angels doesn't mean 99, 998, 999, 1,000 angels exactly, boom, boom. They have their act together. It just means a great number that we can't count. However, when we get to chapter 20, people go, ah, millennial, millennialism, premillennial, postmillennialism. Maybe you've heard these terms. I, I've said this before, and again, I could tell you what people have said about this. I believe it's not fruitful to get caught up in the specifics and the details of the thousand years. Whether they've already happened, that was a question that people asked. Uh, in the year 1000, uh, this was a little bit harder to come by, but people started to wonder, oh, is this literal? Like, is, was this the thousand years that Satan was locked up? Is he about to come back? Or is this the, the reign of the Christians that's going to happen with Christ? Is that before? Is that after? Has it already happened? We sit here in 2022 and we go, maybe it will happen someday. Maybe we can figure out when it's going to happen because there's signs and Jesus said to, to read the signs and, and to be aware and there's predictions and all of this. And again, I don't think that that is the most fruitful way to understand this text. I was watching the, the last game of the West Coast Conference Finals, Golden State versus the Mavericks. And they won, and there was a big celebration afterwards. They brought a stage down. Uh, they, they instituted an MVP award, not for the, for the NBA season or for the finals, but for the semifinals. The first year that they said, you know what, we should probably award an 
MVP for the semifinals. He did a good job. And you might have predicted the MVP of the series was Steph Curry. So they gave the team a trophy. They interviewed Steph Curry. And then, unscripted, they turned to Clay Thompson. They're like, I mean, we didn't plan this, but let's get Clay over here. Because Clay had been injured. He'd been out for a lot of the season. They're like, we want to know. You played a great game. You scored seven three-pointers tonight. It was an awesome game. And do you know what Clay Thompson said? Rosemary, do you remember what he said? What he said kind of bugged me. They said, this is a victory. This is a celebration. They're wearing hats that say West Coast Conference champions. They're going to the finals. Clay, what did you think? And he said, well, I left about three three-pointers on the board out there. I had seven, but I probably could have had ten. That is not the point. Why are you diving into the minutia of the game? And he's probably just kicking himself. Oh, I know I could have done better. Not the point. You did awesome. The team won. They're going to the finals. Maybe they'll beat the Celtics. We will still see. I tell you that because I think in the same way, that's where people get caught up in chapter 20. They get too into the, the details. They try to do the math. They try to figure this out. But they miss the big point that the heavenly warrior defeats the beast. That is what this is about. And maybe that's an oversimplification. Maybe that's not satisfying. But again, there are a lot of questions that come with chapter 20. If we have more time, we could dive into it and we could talk about it. If you want to buy me a cup of coffee, I'd be happy to go over it with you. Um, but let's read on. Let's, let's, let's hear this. Try to understand it but with keeping the big picture in mind. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, a reference from uh, the prophet Ezekiel, and gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But, again, another abrupt ending. Don't blink, because this is going to happen fast too. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. That's good. That's good news. Are we... Do you remember when we talked about the seven seals? It's kind of like when you hear the seven trumpets. It's sort of a replay of the seven seals, but from a different angle. And then you have the seven bowls, where there's new information, but there's familiar themes there, too. It's almost like a third angle or camera view of what is happening. And this is the way John is seeing it. This is the way John is describing it. So the middle part of Revelation is kind of the same thing three times over. Maybe that's what's happening here, because we have this battle that ended abruptly. He threw down the, the beast and the false prophet. And then after a thousand years, again, for some reason that we don't understand, or the thousand year period that could be more than a literal thousand years, or symbolic in ways that don't even reflect something that's going to happen on the ground that we walk on. I lost my train of thought. What was the last important thing I said, Matt? Doesn't reflect. Yeah, it's, it, it may be a replay of the same thing. There are similar themes. This could be the same thing from another angle. We don't understand a lot of why Satan is bound and then released again. And like I said, there are theories, there are, there's speculation. But, again, zoom out with me and see that you get one description of the evil enemy of Christ... Those who oppose God's purposes of this world are thrown into an abyss and locked there. And that 
is worth celebrating. And then again, you have Satan. Well, he's, he's out, he's free, he's going to try again, and this time he has an army that is greater than all of the sands of the seashore. I can't even imagine that. But just as quickly as that first victory was ended, so is this one. Jesus, the Lamb of God, goes, whoosh, whoosh. that's enough of that. And that is what we celebrate. There's a lot of details I'm not sure about. I'm going to read this last part. This has been the uh, source of a lot of fire and brimstone preaching. I've never been a fire and brimstone preacher. I sometimes wish I could. Just like maybe one Sunday a year, I pound on the thing and I, ah, you're all going to hell. And, um, I probably won't do that. But this next section is a reminder of the seriousness, and as is all of Revelation, about when it comes to the spiritual battle between the heavenly warrior and the beast, making sure we know whose side we are on. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up their dead and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, there's some I don't know here. But I know that this would be good news for the seven churches. Earlier in this chapter, it mentioned people who had been beheaded because of their faith. In various places throughout Revelation, they're talking about the blood of the martyrs. People with names like Antipas are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. These are people that the Christians of the seven churches in the seven cities would have known, would have walked with, would have buried and mourned. And then this is a revelation that, hey, I know things are hard, but this is what Christ has done and is doing and will do. Uh, my dad was 38 years old when he died. I was six. It was abrupt, another abrupt ending. He was at work and he and his uh, military buddies, he was at, worked on a Coast Guard base. They were playing volleyball on their lunch break. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, he was playing and he had a massive heart attack fell down and they rushed him to the thing and did what they could do to him, but he was dead by the time my school day was done. My preacher came and picked me up from school and it was a weird day. It was very strange. Nobody was expecting that. But my dad, who had kind of lived a wild life and wanted to be his own king, wanted to make his own way through the ministry of the church that my mom started taking me and my, my sisters to. My dad didn't go at first, but through a, a men's group in a basketball league and just people reaching out to him and saying, hey, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to come to this Bible study? Do you want to know why your wife is so excited about this new faith that she's found? About six months before he died, he said, okay. And he started studying and he started listening. And I remember, I have this vague vision. One Sunday evening, we went to Puget Sound, and he said yes to following Jesus, and he was baptized in the icy cold waters of uh, Puget Sound. And uh, yeah, like six months later, he was dead. But 
my dad knew which side of that spiritual battle he was on. He came to Christ. He knew that his name was written in the book of life. That's part of the big picture that we see from Revelation as well. I talk to a lot of older folks who don't know. They're coming to the end of their life and they say, man, I followed Jesus my whole life. I believe this. I trust it. I, I, I know where I'm going. I'm especially interested in Revelation because of the visions of heaven and like, that's my next chapter. I'm excited to go there, but I'm also a little bit nervous. What if I, what if my name is not in the book of the Lamb? What if God says, oh, you left a, you left a couple spaces on your forms blank, so... No, not, no soup for you. Man, I get that. And the, I, the amount of times I've heard that from people who are in their 80s and just kind of like sunset years, it makes sense. That's what I would be thinking more about as well. But just in the same way that this message could assure a persecuted church in the first century, I want this to be a message of not just hope and like, oh, you know, I hope. This is what happens. I hope there's a space for me, but it's a promise that your names are written in the book of life because of Christ, because the heavenly warrior defeats the beast. But there still remains the, the so what? What do we do with this today, tomorrow? Jacob, how does this encourage us in our faith? Question. And I really struggled with this passage. Usually it's, there's a text and we got to understand it. So I'll teach it. And I'll, you know, there's a basketball illustration or a movie in there probably. And then there's the, okay, what do we do as a church? What does this mean for us? Okay, it might apply to your family. It might apply to your relationship. It might apply to our community. I really struggled with, what do you, what do, you do with this? If all we're doing is waiting for the effects of the defeat of Satan to take effect. It's like when you take, uh, you have a pain in your arm and you take some ibuprofen or something like that. It's like, okay, I've taken the pills. I know that there will be relief, but it hasn't happened yet. Like, I mean, the, the, I, I have a victory and the, the def defeat is coming, but it hasn't really gotten to us yet. It can feel like that when we listen to this passage and say, that's great. I'm looking forward to that day. I want to witness it. I want to watch it. I want to see the birds eat the flesh. What do we do with this now? And part of the reason I think this was difficult is because it's so hard for us to imagine a world in which the beast is defeated and there is no Satan and there is no death and Hades and guilt and shame and all of these things that Satan brings. It talks about Satan here. The, the, all of scripture kind of gives us this picture of Satan. In fact, just because, let's go back to Revelation 12. And Joseph, I don't have this on the screen. I apologize. But we went through Revelation 12 on a week that I was out of town. And the, the guest video speaker didn't go over this real specifically. So it, it, it's worth bringing up again. This is a picture of what Satan is about. And we're reminded that the name Satan can be translated as the accuser. So listen to this. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So he's a deceiver. He's a liar. 
He was hurled down to earth and the angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Let me pause there just a second. This is revealed to us. This is what's going on at the throne of God. The lamb sits on the throne, he's slain, and Jesus is God, and yes, but there's also this view of Satan, and he's like a, an attorney, and he's standing there in the courtroom, and he's got a big file with your name in it, and he's going like, hey, God, I just want to say, Phil Wise, he's a rotten guy, he does not deserve your love, he does not deserve your forgiveness, he did all this bad stuff, I just want to, I'm an accuser, so that's what I do, and I've got a file for Orinda, and for Dick, and for Rosemary, and the people on this side, too. Day and night, he accuses God's people before the throne of God. But what happens to him? They triumph over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. This is a vision of our biggest enemy. And the biggest problem in our lives is being thrown from God's presence. God says, that is not part of my good creation. I am putting that into an endless abyss, and it's going to be done away with forever. Good. But again, it is hard for us to imagine a world in which there's no fear or shame or death. We feel like we're making progress. We pray for people who have cancer, and sometimes we say, man, there's better cancer treatments today than there were 20 years ago, and that's good. We, we want those kinds of treatments. But even if these people get better, they're still going to die. And we debate and we talk about what we should do with the guns in our country. There's people walking into schools and they're shooting children. Okay, well, put some guns with the teachers. Uh, maybe. Get rid of the guns altogether. Uh, maybe. The real problem is we need to get rid of violence altogether. Amen. We need to get rid of death altogether. We need a permanent solution for sickness and hate and the, the hardness of our own hearts. We go see counselors and we try to fix our marriages and we try not to be so impatient with our children. We need a complete overhaul. We need to live in a world that is almost impossible for us to imagine. And John is trying to give us a glimpse and say, this is it. This is that world. Jesus gave his life on the cross. That victory has already happened. And we go, well, hey, my arm still hurts. When is it going to take effect? That, oh, that's the hardest question. Is the when? Is it tomorrow? Is it when I die? Is it another thousand years from now? I don't know. I don't know. It's okay to say that, but it's not very satisfying. I'm not going to leave you with an I don't know. I'm going to end with the words of Jesus, because I think we can get a clue from something Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. So, Jesus this is when he was alive. He gathered disciples and uh, he was training them. He was showing them how to drive out demons, how to heal people, how to talk about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent and rejoice. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, this is my message. You've seen me do it. Now I'm sending you guys out. I'm going to send you out in twos. Don't take any money. Don't take a bag. Just preach the gospel. Do good works in the name of Jesus. So they do. They come back. This is He sends out 72 and they come back and this is what they say. 
Uh, well, it says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then this is the part that's up on the screen. He replied, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. You know, that's pretty good. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Maybe that's using an obscure passage to help understand and translate another obscure passage. When I was reading Revelation 20, the image of Satan falling down, the, the book of life being opened, I remembered these words of Jesus. When did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning? He hadn't been to the cross yet. Is he talking about a video recording of something he saw that was time traveled back from the future? I don't know. But I think that these things are all connected. When it comes to Jesus' disciples doing good works in the name of Jesus. When we defeat the devil in our world. When we overcome the desire for revenge and for hate and for violence. And when we start to live into that kingdom of Christ that is coming. The victory that has already happened. It's both already and not yet. There is a victory. And we see Satan fall like lightning. And we're not all the way there. Or else we'd be a lot less sick and we, our lives would be very different. But the people who follow Jesus are called to live into that. It's not just, ah, yeah, someday, we're waiting for it. Can't wait for it to happen. It's going to get here. Meanwhile, we just kind of hold on and twiddle our thumbs. No, we do the work of Christ. Amen. We bring that message and we say the kingdom of Christ's reign is here. And the final victory is short. It has a, an abrupt ending. And you know who ends up coming out on top? The heavenly warrior defeats the beast. That's my message for today. I hope it encourages you. I hope it challenges you. Uh, it might very well dissatisfy you because we didn't get all the answers that we were hoping for. But let's be people who look for answers, who admit when we don't know what we're talking about. But always, always, always keep Jesus at the center and not lose our hope in Christ and what he has done the rooms that he has provided for us, we can know where we're going because of Christ. If you want to talk with me more about that, if you're struggling with, hey, I don't, I don't know where I'm going, I'm concerned about the end, or I just, I, I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. And the words you're using, I don't fully understand. That's what that cup of coffee is for. I'd love to talk with you about that. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to encourage you. So would a lot of people in this congregation. So come find me. Uh, we'll, we'll sit down together. Let's stand and worship.